Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. So we began Hebrews last week, um, and we'll spend the next uh, few months working our way through this letter. Um, Recap is going to be somewhat easy um, because we don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly who they wrote it to, although we know it was most likely a Jewish background group of believers. We're not sure exactly when it was written, other than we know it was written before 95, most likely before 70 AD. Um, And so it's we don't know a lot of the pertinent details that we typically know about books of scripture but what we do know is is this is that the message is strong and and it's what it's calling us to and what it was calling its original audience to was perseverance that they were struggling this jewish audience um that had a had a background in judaism and in rome judaism was legal christianity wasn't and there's this temptation for them as persecution is coming up, as, as difficulty is coming up to say, well, hey, Jesus is good, but maybe we should just step aside and go back to what we know and what's familiar and what's comfortable. And the author of Hebrews is going to say emphatically, vehemently, over and over again, Jesus is better. And he's going to hold him up and tell us to look deep at who Jesus is so that we would be able to withstand the temptation. To withstand the pressure, the, uh, the persecution, the desire to go back to what we once knew. So we know that Hebrews, although we are not a Jewish background audience, that we all have things. Some of them religious, some of them um, sin-driven, some of them addiction-driven, some of them just normalcy in the world. Some things that would be easy for us to go back to that we are comfortable with. And that we're often asking ourselves the question, is Jesus enough? And is Jesus better? And so the author of Hebrews is going to hold him up and let us look at that. This morning, as we finish chapter 1, really where the author is beginning is there's been a a side issue that has come forth. And this side issue um, is, is angels. And so you're thinking, okay, wait a second, angels? Like, this isn't 1990s TV, right? When we had all the shows about angels, um, do we even believe angels are real? This feels a little bit, a little bit odd, and yet in Judaism, angels held a really prominent spot. But it's easy for us to take things that aren't supposed to be prominent and make them prominent, right? Like we can do this in our in our homes in our households, right? That is, we know we want to have a happy household. We want you know the the husband and wife relationship to be strong and healthy. We want the kids to be um, disciplined. We want them to be in control. We want them to grow up learning, um, loving Jesus. Like we have this big overarching goal of what we want our family to look like. And there are all these components that come in. Well, we have to have some, our finances in order and we have to have discipline in order and we have to have a schooling process in order and we have to have time for a, a married relationship. Like all of these things. And if any one of those gets moved to the top and is like the, the thrust Everything gets knocked out of whack, right? If, if we are so concerned with control, right, that that becomes the primary thing, right? Now everything gets thrown off, and yet control is important. If, if finances become the preeminent issue in our relationship, right, now it's all about saving or having or spending, and things begin to get out of whack. 
So we have to have this overarching goal and then all of these supports. So angels are an aspect of scripture. There's actually almost 275 mentions of angels throughout scripture. Like 162 um, in the, the Old Testament and 100, or, sorry, 108 in the Old Testament, 165 in the New. Like there is a massive amount of information about angels. But the angels and the study of angels had become this really prominent thing in, in Judaism. And so a lot of these folks are coming from an era where they're thinking and, and angels are highly regarded. They had almost taken a role of, of like a pantheon where they were involved in all the nuances and the unexplained scientific phenomena in life with like calendar, with stars, with nature, with seasons, that they're trying to explain the things they're seeing. They know it's supernatural. They know it's divine. And they begin to attribute it to angels. Um, They believe that um, the law was brought by angels. And so angels had this really exalted position um, in, in Judaism. And because these are Jewish background folks who now are believing in Jesus, there's this temptation to, to almost worship angels. And so the, the initial kind of our conversation about families for just a moment was this, that angels are a part of our theology, of our systematic of how we understand scripture. But if they are taken from the role that they play into an elevated role, we can begin to go astray. If you look in Colossians 2... In verse 18, we see the church um, here was actually falling into worship of angels. So he says this, Let no one disqualify you, assisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That we saw that the worship of angels was not just kind of happening, it was happening, that it was being addressed by Paul and other writers in the New Testament. And so the author here is wanting to debunk this because he wants to show that Jesus is better. And so what he's going to do is he's actually going to quote the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that that they would have recognized as authoritative from God to show that Jesus is better, that he is higher, that he is more elevated, that he is more exalted than the angels. And so he's in this, these like 11 verses we're going to look at this morning, he's going to quote the Old Testament at least seven times to compare and contrast Jesus with the angels. So let's begin in verse 3, and we will finish out chapter 1. It says, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all, of the, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So what we see here is this. is The, the author doesn't spend any time really reflecting on the things that he's saying. It's almost like he's saying, you think this of the angels? And he just begins to like lob out these things about Jesus. And Jesus is this. And scripture says he is this. And he is this. And, he, and he's almost wanting to overwhelm and just wow them with, man, you think the angels are this? And I'm not going to tear it down. Because they are. But Jesus is so much more. And he just begins to lob scripture and references and thoughts without explanation to them. It's probably going to take a little explanation for us, though, this morning. So, um, the first thing I want us to notice is that he says Jesus is greater, that he is higher, that he is better than the angels because he has a greater name. Look at verses 4 and 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, so we have to ask, what's the name? What name is it that he has inherited that is greater than the angels? And we saw it last week in that he was called the Son. That the Son is greater than the prophets because he has spoken through the prophets. He's now speaking through the Son, and a Son is greater than a messenger. And so we see it continued in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Which he is quoting from Psalm 2 there, verse 7. And so, listen, um, what he is telling them is this. is He's like, look, the angels, they are supernatural. They are my servants. They are messengers. They are these tremendous beings that, are, that in the created order, right, are, are really higher than us. Because we know this from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, For a little while Jesus was made lower than the angels. So if Jesus was made human, right, he was made lower than the angels. So they play a different role in creation than us, but they are more powerful than us. And so he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? And so what he's saying is Jesus is greater because he has been called son. Now listen, that idea there can begin to bother us a little bit of like, okay, so he became the son, like what's going on? Was he not always the son? Is he God? Is he not God? And there's a reason when he says you've in, he's inherited this name. This, this title of son is not meant to represent time. It's not a temporal thing. It's not saying that when he was born of the virgin, now he's the son because now he's been made, now he's been created, now he's been brought into... It's not what he's saying. It's a title. It's a title that's been given. It's, it's, it's defining the relationship. He was always God. We saw in verse 3 last week that he has created the universe, that he upholds the universe. Jesus has always been God. 
But when he stepped into human history as our rescuer, when he put on flesh and was God incarnate, and then when he lived the life that we were meant to live in perfect submission, faithfulness, obedience, dependence upon God, when then he goes to the cross on our behalf, satisfying the wrath of God, the anger of God towards wickedness and sin, And then he is resurrected, beating sin and beating Satan and beating death. When he does these things, he inherits the name son. Because the son was sent to do a specific purpose. To be the God-man, to rescue God's creation, right, from eternal separation. Eternal damnation from the father. And so the son is a title, it's a name given to the the member of the Trinity, the Godhead, who is rescuing us. It is not that he was created later, that he was born later. He was and is God. He just did not need to be the son prior to our rescue. And yet we know the rescue was set up from before the foundations of time, right? So that he was always going to be the son The son is a title inherited. Some would say then and now that Jesus was just an angel. Or he was just the best of humanity. Right? That he he did more than anybody else could do. But look at verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's creator. Right? In John 10, verse 30. We see this statement from Jesus. My, this is verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Talking about His, his followers. And then in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so He claims, I'm, we're one. Like, I am He. I am God. Because in the very next verse it says, and the Jews just start picking up rocks, right? Because they understood the claim there was, He is saying, I am deity. I am God. It's why when we see the miracle, when the four friends lower their friend through the roof, right? That He he tells him his sins are forgiven. And people are like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. Only God can forgive sins. And he says, okay, so that you know that I can do what I claim to do. Get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. Right? That Jesus knew who he was and he claimed to be it. That he, his name was the greatest name. And so Paul writes about this same situation in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to how he writes. Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the crucifixion on our behalf. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the Father has sent the Son and given Him this name because it's the story of our rescue. That He, for a while, served us in this role. So the first thing is that his name is greater, that the son is greater than an angel. It reflects a closer, more intimate relationship. The second reason that he's going to kind of compare and contrast angels here and say that Jesus is better, it's not just his role. Sorry, it's not just his name, but it's his role. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. And of all the angels, he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. If you look at the last verse in chapter 1. And are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so if we were to kind of boil angels and all the things that we see and all the things that's referenced to them in scripture. It would kind of come down that they're playing one of two roles. They're either worshiping God through their being messengers through their bringing of judgment. Like they're, they're worshiping God because they're being faithful and obedient to Him. Or they're serving. And there's, right, we see Jesus after His 40 days in the wilderness that the angels minister to Him. Verse 14 says they actually minister to, to the church. To those who are looking to persevere, to strive, to make it to the end. That we, right, are being ministered to by angels. Chapter 13 of Hebrews will say... Right? We, we need to be careful how we treat strangers because you may be entertaining angels unaware. Right? That they take on human form some. So what he's saying is this, is look, God doesn't need any help in getting us to himself. But we are weak and we are frail and we are prone to wander and we are prone to forget. And we are prone to question whether he's able. And so he has created a whole nother set of beings Whose explicit role is to help us persevere. To help us get there. To minister to us. To serve us. Because in that they're worshiping Jesus. Right? So their role is to worship. And it's to serve. And they they do this in a variety of forms. Jesus, for a brief time, humbled himself, emptied himself, and stepped into time and into um, history... As the God-man to serve us. We saw that in Philippians 2. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that ultimately his eternal perspective is not to serve. It is to reign. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated Weakness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Listen to verse 10. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you, like a robe, you will roll them up. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He's basically saying, look, this, the, the angels are to worship God, and they're to serve, right? Jesus will reign forever. So he's showing that the role that they're playing is significantly different. That Jesus has been humble. He has served. But forever, he is in control. He is reigning as king and victor. In verse 6, 
says that again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, again, some people will look at this and say, see, Jesus is just the first of humanity. He's the firstborn. He's the first one coming in. He's not God. He's created. But once again, the term firstborn is a title. It is not a descriptor here of what happened. It's a title to show you that this is a title, that it's a word of authority, right? We can turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what's described here. It says, Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, you hear that term again, from the dead. Then in everything he might be preeminent. So Colossians 1.18, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, saying like he's the first to be resurrected. However, he wasn't. Right? We know he resurrected Lazarus. He, re- he resurrected J- Jairus' daughter, right? So he's not saying that he was the first to be resurrected. He is saying he is the resurrection that matters. Right? He is the firstborn. It's a title saying it's not, it's not a temporal thing again. It's a title. And so he is not saying he is the firstborn into the world because he's the first of humanity. He's saying he is the preeminent God-man. He is the preeminent human because he has rescued us. And he will reign forever. That he's righteous, right? The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We saw as we spent a good portion of this year in Amos that God's anger was kindled when his people that were supposed to reflect his image, which were supposed to shine into the world, his name and his sake and his glory, they didn't, right? They, they marred his image by not being just, by not being righteous, by not living out his character. And yet Jesus does it completely and perfectly. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. His kingdom is known for righteousness. You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Listen, that when Jesus was mocked and beaten and humiliated and lied about, right, like that he didn't sin in that. Right, like we can't handle, right, when someone says something wrong about us, even though they're wrong about that, but they would be right about ten other things, right? They're like, well, you got that one thing wrong, and I'm offended. And, and we, like, freak out when you're going, if they actually knew the truth, they would have a whole lot more to say. Right? And yet Jesus was mocked and humiliated and lied and beaten and done publicly and in a trial and all of these things and without sin. As we think about even the, the, the Me Too movement that has rocked the, the political and, and religious and social world over the last year, 18 months. Right? I want you to picture the scene where a woman comes and, and breaks right, this perfume and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. That in that moment, Jesus did not sin against her physically. We know that. But he also didn't sin against her with his mind. Right? Like... Men, like, we, we just know, like, that's incredible, right? Like, that he was holy and perfect and righteous, and his kingdom will be marked by these things. That this is who he is, and his scepter will say that righteousness reigns forever. So it gives us hope and security and stability that we know who the victor is. 
do, do we see Jesus this way? Or do we see him as like, yeah, he's the guy that's going to help me get to heaven. Or do we see him as the one who will rule forever? Is worthy and beautiful and powerful and victorious. Listen, what the author of Hebrews is not doing is this. He is not degrading angels. Nothing he has said so far is to be like, you think too much of angels. He's saying this. Whatever you want to think of angels, he's better. He's more. Because they're going to worship him. Listen, look at verse 6. Let all of God's angels worship him. In verse 9. God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who are his heavenly companions? The angels. And he's saying God has come over and said, you are my son. And he anoints him. Listen, this is going to matter. Because all the priests... Of the order of Aaron were anointed before their service. And Jesus is going to play the role of high priest on our behalf. A role the angels could not play. To rescue us because he was in the flesh. We see him being anointed. The author of Hebrews is, is setting this up for us. That this matters. That, that God anoints him. And we see this at his baptism. Right? In Matthew 3, he says, like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He anoints him with the Holy Spirit. He anoints him with gladness and with joy. In Acts 10, we are reminded that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. In verse 38. Remember what we read in Philippians 2 just a moment ago. That there will be a day where he will step back into history. Where he will split the sky. And he will come for his church. For his people. And it says, and every knee will bow. And some of them will bow in absolute adoration and worship and in recognition of, there's my king. I have worshipped and followed and sought and treasured him. And I will gladly bow my knee to the victor and to the conquering king. And there will be others who in that moment will bow their knee in fear. Because they will not be going, ah, I'm not sure where I stand on this. They'll know who he is. And they'll know that he is mighty and powerful. Verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Church, he sat down at the right hand of the father because he has accomplished the work. It is done. Angels are said to be in the presence of God. Luke 1 tells us this, but they stand in the presence of God. They don't dare sit. He is exalting Jesus saying the work that he has done is accomplished. And if the son is greater than the prophet, is the son is greater than the angels, there is no further message to come. There is no one closer or more intimate to the father than the son. So the message is done. We will get nothing more than the gospel. That Jesus is the exalted one. He is the victor. He is worthy. And because of his greater name and because of his greater role, worship occurs. Verse 7, the angels worship him. Because he has won, he is victorious, he is satisfied. Because he was the son, because he was the king, because he is righteous. Because he is our high priest and he is enthroned and exalted. And so we get this scene that maybe will sound a little different to us now. This is Revelation 5 as John is getting a vision of heaven. And it says, right, that there's those standing around going, who is worthy to open the scroll? This is Revelation 5. Verse 9. 
Worthy, and, and this they say about Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you are slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom which he rules with righteousness and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Listen to verse 11 now. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Right? Like that they are standing thousands upon thousands of angels, supernatural, glorious beings, saying to Jesus, worthy to you, glory to you. You are the one who has done this. You are the one who's accomplished it. You are the son. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, think what you want of angels, but Jesus is exalted. He is more and he is better. So, here's where we end this morning. I don't hear a lot of conversation about angels right now, right? In eight plus years of Redeemer's existence, not once has anyone ever come and asked me a question about angels, right? That's yet to happen. Um, just, it's just not a common in our culture conversation right now. It's not something you're hearing a lot of sermons about. But what angels were doing for the church here that the, the author is dealing with is this. It was distracting them. It was dividing their focus. And it was, they, were, they were tempted to elevate the angels. Into, and in doing that, they were devaluing Jesus. They were bringing him down to level or maybe he's just one of them. And they weren't seeing Jesus rightly or correctly. And so maybe angels aren't doing this in 2019 in our culture. But there are some things that are. And we're just going to hit on two of them. We'll leave the rest of that for conversation and gospel community. But culturally, we see two things that are doing this. And the first is this. Is the absolute focus on comfort and health and wealth that the church can, can tend to spew. That what it does is it focuses our life on the temporal and the here and the now. And Jesus becomes a means to the end to gain what I really want. And that is power. That is prestige. That is reputation. That is relationship. That is health. That is, that, that is money. Right? In whatever, whatever vein you take it in. So Jesus, be my genie. Get me what I want. If I have to give you a little of allegiance, okay. But you do what I want to give me what I need so I have the best 80, 90 years of life possible. And, and it needs to be easy. Right? And, and, and so what it does is it says, hey, we're still going to talk about Jesus a little bit. But we're elevating this other thing over here to the thing that we actually want. That we actually value. And it just continues to lower Jesus to our servant. Instead of the exalted, victorious one enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, who the angels, thousands of thousands, who are supernatural beings, greater and more powerful than us, are singing to. And we're over here going, do my bidding, Jesus. Right? Like, we would never want to say that, but that's, that's, that's the temptation of our heart. That is insane that we would view Jesus in this manner. The second... And maybe for, for us, um, 
a greater temptation even than to see Jesus as, the, as kind of the health and wealth genie is for him just to be what we'll call Southern Jesus. Right? Southern Jesus um, votes like us, thinks like us, agrees with us. Um, the stuff that you really hate, he hates it. And the stuff that you're like, ah, I know I struggle with it, but it's not that big a deal. He's, he feels the same way. He's never offended by your actions and he never calls you into account. Southern Jesus tells you you're moral and you're polite. You're certainly not a Muslim. And he's going to get you to heaven someday. Right? And he just becomes this cultural tack on that identifies us as we're not that, we're this. And he gets no worship, he gets no glory. He gets no treasuring, no following, because he's just this thing that identifies us, right? It's just like another flag in our yard of, I'm, I'm this political party, not this one. I'm this religion, I'm not this one, I'm, right? And we just begin to line them up. And so if I say I'm a Christian, then it means, well, I'm, I'm mostly moral, I'm mostly polite, I'm mostly conservative, I'm mostly whatever. He can become a weapon if necessary, right? We can use him against others. Well, you know what Jesus says. And yet, we see that nowhere in Scripture, right? That we get to wield Jesus for our cultural benefit or as a weapon. Jesus is an object of worship. He is one to trust and to follow and to bow down. He is our king and our victor. He is our rescuer and our savior, right? And so our lives are devoted to him as we strive after him. And so the author of Hebrews is saying this, you currently are distracted and you're tempted to walk over here to something that feels easier and more comfortable that will avoid some pain and you want to make your life about that. And I'm telling you, if you do that, you're going to miss it all because Jesus is worthy and he is better than you think he is. And he is more than you think he is. And he is going to get you to the other side. So hang on. And so he's, and he's writing it to the body. Saying let's hang on together. Right? We're going to get there together. We're not going to let people walk off and run away. We're going to get there together. So the end of chapter 1 is a little bit of like a second introduction. Because he's now just going to start to build on these themes of Jesus is better, of Jesus as a high priest, as Jesus is conquering king, as Jesus as victorious, as Jesus as the one who is coming, as Jesus is the one who wins and reigns, and constantly warning and drawing us back to stay with him. He is better than you think, and he is everything you need. So church, here's the deal. There's probably some rub in our hearts this morning. Because we can intellectually agree and nod with a lot of this. But there could also be like some dullness or like, man, I feel like something should be like lit or like on fire. And it's just not. Like, I, I don't know, disagree with anything you say, but I don't feel that. Right? That we ask the Spirit, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would we, would we go to Scripture looking to know Him, to see Him revealed to us? 
Would we seek to be obedient to him? Would we ask him to speak to us, to give us eyes to see, right? That Jesus will be faithful to reveal himself to those who ask to see. He will. But here's the thing. We don't dictate those things, right? We don't, we don't draw lines in the sand and say, Jesus, here's who you are. Here's who I am. Do what I say. Right? Like that picture in Revelation is not one of where we walk in going, hey, this is a neat scene. Look at all these people singing to Jesus. It is a scene of reverence and of power and of worth and of glory that we will one day be a part if we trust, treasure, and follow Jesus as our Savior and as our Rescuer. And so we're asking Him to, to give us this sense because then it affects the way we live our life because He is foremost in our treasure. And so if you don't feel this, if it doesn't excite you, if it doesn't minister to you, like would you, would you just let that be a check in your spirit that something's off? Sin that needs to be confessed, conversation that needs to be had, repentance that needs to be done, right? A returning to the things that would anchor us in Jesus. Because the author of Hebrews, and this is the last thing for real we're going to say, is this. We don't drift into godliness, you are either actively pursuing Jesus or you are moving further away. Not just for those who don't know him, but for those who know him. We do not get to coast because we got baptized. We don't get to coast because we said Jesus is king once. We pursue him to the promised land. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that, that you have pursued us. That you have revealed yourself to us. That you have made us yours. Lord, that there is nothing we can do to gain your affection, but you give it freely. So, Father, we then want to respond in kind because you have rescued us. You have made us yours. That we are called sons and daughters of the King. So, Father, right now, would you stir affection for yourself in our hearts and in our minds? That we would not be so studious that we simply nod in agreement of, yes, that is correct. I think that about you. That we would know and believe right things, but we would also be stirred with affection and treasuring and love for you. Because you are so much bigger and more and glorious than we know. So, Father, I, I want to confess and repent that often I can make you this thing that's over to the side. Because i got work to do. May it not be. May you be at the forefront of everything that we do because you are worthy and deserving. God, reveal yourself to us. Your church is sitting and is waiting. God, give us the strength to respond. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.